0: The past and the future of comics really belong much more to women and to young people than a lot of people give them credit for.
1: We went back and forth a couple of times. I figured I worked at the magazine. I knew what the thing was called. But of course, when I went home and looked it up, I realized I
2: was wrong. Typically, we pop in a good podcast or an audio book to kind of pass the time. It saves me, honestly, the misery of driving through Virginia.
1: Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks. In this episode, meet author and critic Douglas Wolk, journalist and music critic Kelly Fasane, and sports journalist Dana O'Neill. Meet these expert authors and listen in as they share their passion for their subjects, from Marvel Comics to music to college basketball. Enjoy!
0: Hi, this is Douglas Walk, author of All of the Marvels. I wrote my book because I wanted to see what the Marvel story, this gigantic half-million-page story of all of Marvel's superhero comics over the last 60 years, looked like as a single story. What kind of shape it would take if I took the long view of it, if I backed up far enough to be able to look at the whole thing, see what it said about the last 60 years. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be invigorating. It was exhausting at first. The first day I went home from the recording session really feeling like I'd been run over by something with at least three wheels, maybe as many as six, and slept it off, woke up the next morning like, Oh, wait, I actually feel great. I can't wait to get back into the studio. This is fun. Oh, thank God, this is fun. Is there a word or phrase I didn't know how to pronounce? Huh, so many. B.B. Rebozo. I will get B.B. Rebozo's name right from now on. Palette. Pastel. And my arch nemesis? I discovered that my arch nemesis is the word creator. Creator or co-creator or creative. There's almost always a little all-I-want-for-Christmas-is-my-two-front-teeth kind of whistle that comes through. I assume that it's some creator's revenge from beyond the grave on me. I am proud, though, that I was able to research the pronunciation of a few of the old Norse words that come up in the Thor chapter. I think I got those. I'm proud that I was able to get some of the jokes in this book across. It's really important to me to make this a funny book, an entertaining book, because in some ways it's a book of arts criticism, which can be very dry, and it's really important to me for it not to be that, and I think I was able to capture some of that in narrating the book. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, I would cast Iman Vellani. She's playing Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, in the MCU, and the past and the future of comics really belong much more to women and to young people than a lot of people give them credit for. I would love to hear my words in A Voice Like Hers. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. The 27,000 or so superhero comic books that Marvel Comics has published since 1961 are the longest continuous, self-contained work of fiction ever created over half a million pages to date, and growing. Thousands of writers and artists have contributed to it. Every week, about 20 slim pamphlets of 20 or 30 pages apiece are added to the body of its single, enormous story. By design, any of its episodes can build on the events of any that came before it, and they're all, more or less, consistent with one another.
1: Hi, this is Kella Fasane, author of Major Labels, a history of popular music in seven genres. I wrote my book because when I was 14, I fell in love with punk rock, which led me in a complicated way to fall in love with hip-hop and dance music and R&B and pop and country and all sorts of stuff. I ended up becoming a professional music listener, that is, a music critic, at the New York Times and then a staff writer at the New Yorker, My book is about musical genres, rock and roll, country music, R&B, punk rock, hip-hop, dance music, and pop. And it's about the way those genres function as communities, pulling some people in by pushing other people out. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be fun? It was a lot more fun than I thought it would be partly because I've been writing about music for so long, since the 90s in one form or another, in fanzines and magazines and newspapers. And so rereading these words that I had written felt kind of like revisiting all those chapters of my life. Sometimes I would read something I had almost forgotten I had written, and I'd think, hey, that kind of sounds like me. One of many things I learned from reading my entire book into a microphone is that there are lots of words I didn't know how to pronounce. In fact, I had learned this about a week earlier at a party where I met someone who was a reader of The New Yorker. We got to talking about those little dots that The New Yorker loves to put over vowels. Some people think they're umlauts, but actually, as this person knew, they're called diaresis. Actually, I thought they were called diaresis, we went back and forth a couple of times. I figured I worked at the magazine. I knew what the thing was called. But of course, when I went home and looked it up, I realized I was wrong. Dieresis. So when I was recording this book, almost any time I got to a word where I wasn't entirely sure how to pronounce it, I had the engineer look it up. Sometimes it turned out that I was right, but definitely not all the time. When listeners listen to this audiobook, the one thing I hope they'll do is turn it off. I mean, not permanently, but I hope they hit pause every now and then to go and look up some of the records that I write about, to judge for themselves whether what I'm saying makes any sense at all, and maybe to enjoy some of the records I write about too, or not to enjoy them, depending. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, I think I would have cast... I don't know, just about anyone in the book? I mean, the book is full of people whose voices I like much better than my own. If I had to pick one, it might be Andre 3000 from OutKast. I interviewed him once a few years ago, and it was almost impossible for me to pay attention to what he was saying because when he talked... He sounded just like that guy on the Outcast records. In fact, anytime time he said a word that had occurred in the lyrics of an Outcast track, I was transported to that track and I almost had to remind myself to wake up and pay attention to what he was actually saying. And now, here's a clip from my audiobook. One evening in 1962, a 13-year-old girl named Pamela was pleased to see on her television a 22-year-old man from the Bronx called Dion DiMucci. He was the former lead singer of Dion and the Belmonts and a preeminent teen idol, one of the biggest stars in rock and roll. The girl was more than pleased, in fact. Quote, Dion, she wrote in her diary. Quote, oh, help, I'm so excited, I think I'll just die. I was running around, choking and crying and yelling and screaming. Like many American teenagers in the 1960s, Pamela was obsessed with rock stars. And as she grew older, her obsession grew more intense, in tandem with the increasing intensity of its
2: objects. Hi, this is Dana O'Neill, author of The Big East, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. I wrote this book mostly because a book agent reached out to me about writing a book about the Big East. I'd been covering the league for 30 years, and it never occurred to me to write a book about the conference, and frankly, I figured one had already been done. But when I realized that that wasn't the case, I was eager to write it. Having witnessed the Big East in person for all of these years, and all of the crazy battles, and the entertaining coaches, I knew there was a great story to be told, and I was really excited about the honor of being able to tell this story and bring all of these characters to life. If I had to describe what it was like to record an audiobook in one word, I'd probably use the word educational— I'm a writer. (laughs) I'm not a talker. I'm not a reader. I've done some things on television and certainly on radio and in podcasts before, but I do not do this naturally or necessarily easily, and I've watched people certainly do teleprompter work and things like that in television, but I never really understood how difficult it was, frankly, and how challenging it was to be clear and concise I'm Italian, I speak fast, so I had to learn to slow myself down a little bit. So I have a new appreciation, I guess you could say, for people who actually do this for a living. If I wasn't going to be the person to record this audiobook, my first choice reader would have been Bill Raftery. The Seton Hall coach and Fox analyst has a great voice, as anybody who listens to college basketball knows, and he knows the league so well, and he's so entertaining and so colorful and so funny. I knew he would put the proper twist on all of the stories inside of this book. Raf is just a complete and utter gem, and I think it would have been so entertaining to allow him to read this book to everyone. I realize I had trouble pronouncing the word diminutive, and I think I'll never write it again. I kept calling Lou Karnaseka diminutive, and I could not get it out. I will say some of my friends, a good friend of mine, in fact, makes fun of the way I talk and say tournament, but I think that's just my inner New Jersey coming out, so I'm not apologizing for that one. But diminutive is now a word that I will not type so frequently, at least if I think I have to read it. The last audiobook that I listened to that I loved was Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Of course, listening to Matthew McConaughey read the phone book would be kind of entertaining, but I loved the book, number one, and the message that was within it. And I also had the pleasure a few years ago of actually sitting down and interviewing Matthew McConaughey in his role as sort of the Texas famous cheerleader. And he was so interesting and so insightful. And granted, I know he's an actor, so he could probably like sell me on things. But I felt like he was really present and really engaged in the conversation about all things Texas. So when I listened to his book, I got that same feeling that this wasn't just Matthew McConaughey reading a bunch of words. But they were really important words to him and there was a meaning behind what he was trying to say. And, of course, he's got that great speaking voice, so it made it a very, very easy listen. Generally speaking, I listen to audiobooks when I'm in the car. My daughter goes to the University of Alabama, which necessitates a 15-hour drive a couple of times a year. And while I love listening to music, 15 hours is way too long to listen to music. So typically we pop in a good podcast or an audiobook to kind of pass the time. It saves me, honestly, the misery of driving through Virginia, which is not a state that anyone realizes is quite as big until they have to actually drive through it. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. Giddy with success, Dave Gavitt and Mike Trangisi stepped outside and into the din of New York City. It was September 16th, 1981, and the two men had just put the finishing touches to a $1 million deal with Madison Square Garden. In two years, their fledgling Big East Conference would play its tournament in the world's most famous arena. The move was audacious, maybe even borderline harebrained. Then again, only a few years earlier, some had thought the same of the very idea of the Big East Conference. But Gavitt, the league founder and commissioner, was undeterred, convinced a tournament in New York City would give his conference the verve and legitimacy it needed.